Welcome to the Imperfectly Perfect Campaign, sharing real-life stories from real people to unite them in global change for the face of mental health. We will also reduce the stigma, creating communication, healing, and awareness to save lives and inspire. Join us weekly as we talk to some of the highly acclaimed faces, influencers, experts, and others who have been through extreme adversity. All right, guys, so welcome to another episode of the Imperfectly Perfect podcast. And today I've got a fellow northerner coming on live all the way from, where are you from actually? Well, I'm from Hull, but I'm in London at the moment. Oh, you're from Hull, not far from where I used to live. Stockbridge Way, going out that way. So Gemma Alton, welcome to the show. Producer, actress, advocate, public speaker, TEDx speaker at that. And now she's taking over her parents' charity called Seed. So first and foremost, welcome to coming to the show. Tell me how you're doing in the north of England at the moment. Well, the, the north of England is, um, they, they, they've gone into tier three which is uh, a little bit scary for, for them. We're in, in London, I'm in Fulham at the moment, because this is where I, I live. Mm. Um, we're in tier two. It's just, it's all very, it's all very strange. And it's, and it's um, I think there's a lot more sadness um, this time around, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, I've been hearing from a lot of uh, people, you know, friends and um, people who are contacting the charity, which we'll get into, um, I'm sure, um, just about how, they understand what's going on, but it's just becoming harder and harder. And I think we all know, you know, with um, with winter uh, creeping up and the clocks, you know, just just going back. So like we're losing an extra hour of daylight and, and all, you know, it's just mm. all of those things where people are sort of feeling more and more sadness and more and more anxiety. And, you know, it's in the lead up to Christmas and, yeah. yeah, it's 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 it feels very strange in London at the moment. It feels like um, not that I've been out much because I've literally just been <laughs> working every other good sense, but it does feel like there's a lot of tension um, around. And you know, I, I just hope that we we find that morale again that we did first time round to sort of hopefully come through the other side. Um, yeah. Can I just say I know it's imperfectly perfect, but Glenn is literally, we were meant to just have a Zoom meeting to chat about, you know, how, how we might be able to talk, like help each other and what we both do. And he's just said, you fancy doing the podcast now. So, imperfectly perfect, here you go. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know what, it is off the bat. You know, I actually laugh though, because when people like the campaign, I'm very fortunate and grateful it's got this big, but the podcast actually got picked up after four episodes for iHeartRadio in Australia. And everyone was literally like, that's so good. How did you do it? I was like, I have no clue. I used my laptop and pressed garage band and went play. Yep. <laughs> and everyone's like, what? <laughs> I'm like, you know what? It's authenticity at its best. I'm resourceful. Yeah. I'm a northerner. <laughs> yeah. But I want to take it back to the beginning, Gemma. So we're going to touch on the charity seed in a moment, but there's obviously a story behind the scene where it came from. So a lot of people predominantly know you as an on-screen actress, producer for the amazing work you've done. But can you tell us who Gemma is behind the scenes? Well, go back to the very beginning. Well, not when you was born, mate. But uh... <laughs> well, um, so before pre pre ED, as in Emmerdale and eating disorder. See what I did there. Um, I, you know, I was a very, very fortunate, lucky whole ass. You know, I had a wonderful family, still do. Um, there was no issues growing up. You know, I've got three brilliant siblings, uh, two parents who are just dirt on and dirted on all of us. Um, and life seemed sort of pretty idyllic, really. And I remember thinking, you know, back then, like, God, if this is what life is, this is amazing. Um, and then sadly, it all sort of changed um I was quite a, a tomboy um always lacking out with the lads lacking it's a northern word um <laughs> lacking out with the lads and and playing down the 10 foot um pull word that's for the back, back alleyways of the houses <laughs> and the gardens and everything um and didn't really sort of feel any emphasis or need to be the girl in the gingham dress with the ponytail and, and all the pigtails and what have you and then slowly puberty started to kick in and 
I remember having a bowler hat haircut and looking a bit like I'd had myself, but I didn't care. Um, but I got my hair cut into a girlier style, and I know it sounds really weird, but the context behind it is, is that I started to sort of blossom as, as a young female. Um, started going through puberty around the age of 10 um, and also started sort of all of the wonderful you know experiences that I had growing up like with my dad going through my maths and my spellings and mum getting me to sing and all of these skill sets that I learned you know running around with dad on, on the um, on the sports pitch sprinting they all started to come to the fore and I started to sort of excel I guess mm. at, at what what I was loving and doing in life. And along with that came the Green Eyed Monster. Um, and it sort of went from, you know, being friends with everyone to suddenly having the Whispers start and the girls, um, you know, picking on me. And it was a really weird time because I don't know about you, Glenn, but I, I find that emotional bullying and words um, yeah. can hurt more than physical. Mm. And I always remember thinking, I wish somebody would just hit me because I can't, at 10 years old, I don't know how to articulate that I'm sad because people are saying nasty things about me. Yeah. And literally overnight, I, something changed inside me and something changed in my brain and my mindset. And I started to feel disgusting and I started to hate myself and I started to look in the mirror and feel fat which was a word that I'd never ever associated with my body before because I was by no means big or whatever the correct term is I hate the word fat it's awful mm. but you know it's, it's the only way that I could describe myself at that time and slowly but surely um I started to develop anorexia um and my parents spotted the warning signs very quickly and were amazing uh, sat me down and did all the right things by the book, you know, encouraged me to talk and said, Jem, you know, we know that you're putting down your food. We know that you're unhappy, you know, talk to us. And I said, I don't know what's happening, mum. You know, I'm scared. So they took me to the doctor and the doctor weighed me and said that I wasn't low enough in weight to have any problems. And that, you know, there was nothing for him to worry about. Just keep an eye on me and see you later, basically. Mm. And long story short, within a year I was then admitted to a psychiatric unit at the age of 11, 11 and a half um, and put on bed rest and told that if I didn't eat or drink within 24 hours I'd be dead and life changed forever really um, and over the next 13 years it was a constant I say life or I don't know if it was a life um, it was a constant experience of living in and out of hospitals and institutions and eating disorder units and some of these places were miles away from mm. hope you know that the the strain that it put not just on me but but my whole family was just horrific um and during that time mum and dad decided that no other family would go through what we were going through because i i tried to be careful when I explain, but, and I don't like politics, but, you know, CAMS and the government let us down. You know, we, we should have been, that referral and that waiting list, you know, should not have been six, seven months. They shouldn't have cancelled our first, you know, assessment meeting mm. every two months, you know, and this was what was happening. And, and mum and dad wanted to make a change. So they set up um, SEED which is support and empathy for eating disorders in our front room <laughs> in Hull while I was in hospital, I think. Um, and I remember at the time thinking, you are nuts. Like, and you got enough going on? But, you know, they, they were the first people who taught me about, you know, inspiring for change and um, fighting for, for what you believe in. And we grew and grew as a charity and we've been going 20 years now. Um, Sorry if I'm rambling on, am I rambling on? No, no, no. <laughs> um, and um, I wanted nothing to do with seed um, to start with, to be honest. I was furious. I was so angry. 
Um, and it wasn't me who was angry, it was the eating disorder. Because number one, mum and dad were getting more and more knowledge and understanding of an eating disorder. Therefore, it challenged the eating disorder. And I was really knocked off about that because yeah. all of a sudden I couldn't get away with things, you know. Um, but also I was just like, I felt, I felt lost because I was like, what you're my mum and dad you're meant to be helping me you shouldn't be like you shouldn't be helping others and you know it was just such a awful selfish way of thinking but I really struggled with seed to start with but then the pivotal point came when I think I was 18 or 19 and um I went into another massive bout um, of the eating disorder, you know, anorexia, bulimia, over-exercising, I was drinking, I was a mess, I was an absolute mess and something had happened um, when I was 17 that I'd not spoken about um, that triggered my my little demon, as you want to call it, mm. um, and I went right downhill to the point where I had a heart attack and it was at that point where I remember mum driving me to the hospital and being so amazing, Glenn. Like she, this was the woman who we used, I used to scream at, like before Seed and, and mum and dad starting to educate themselves, it was like World War Three in our house. Like we would fight, say awful things to each other. I was vile to her. Um, and then here she is in this car, driving a daughter to the hospital, being so calm and so loving. That was the point where I just went, oh my God, I get what she's doing. Mm. Seed is about trying to save me. It's not just about, you know, trying to save everybody else. It's about her trying to deal with her feelings and emotions and fight for a daughter. And that's when I started to listen to them more and support the idea of seed and um i started to want to try and change that a little bit more and try and get better but i mean glenn as, as you'll probably know mental health doesn't work like that especially when something's been in your mind and part of your life for what 10 years up to that point um, and this is why you know early intervention is so key um, so even though I was sort of showing glimmering signs of some sort of hope, it wasn't enough. And I carried on, um, you know, I had a bowel prolapse when I was 20 because of the strain that I'd been putting on my body with, with laxatives and with the lack of muscle because of the lack of nutrients. Um, and I just couldn't seem to, I knew I wanted to, but I just didn't know how to claw my way back. Mm. And then around the age of 20, um, I was in um, an eating disorder unit and I was allowed to go home that weekend because I put on enough weight to go home. This was another thing that was totally messed up with the system. It was a whole reward and punishment thing. Like, you know, if you put on X amount of weight, you can pick up the phone and speak to your sister. If you lose weight, you don't get to see your grandparents for the next month. If you put on weight, you can bath yourself if you don't put on this weight then we will keep um giving you a you know a, a bedpan wash like it was just there was no understanding of what was going on in here you know like putting on weight fantastic wonderful but did it stay on no because no. my roots were broken you know like everything that I thought I knew as a kid had gone and nobody had helped or supported me to try and figure out what the basis of my anorexia at that point was. Um, you know, I, I always say that words or actions that hurt us can push us to stay silent, but pain is always expressed. Mm. And um, I was coming home from the eating disorder unit because I put on enough weight to do so. And uh, my mum rang me and said, you know, when, when are you arriving home? And I said, oh, I don't know, because I've got a lift today, so I'm not on the train. I was coming back from Sheffield. And then 
one of my best mates texted me and was like, hi Jen, like really looking forward to seeing you when are you back? And I was like, I don't know how long to be straight. Um, we're going down like the motorway, like anything could happen. And then mum rang me again and was like, are you near home yet? And I was like, yeah, like everyone's excited about seeing me today. And then I, I got home and then, uh, my mum and my best friend were there waiting for me and said, um, Gemma Lee's died. And Lee was my first ever boyfriend at seven years old. He gave me a peck on the cheek. Mm. Um, and I was like, I don't know what you mean. And he said, oh, he's, um, he's killed himself. And I remember just not being able to get my head around it for such a long time but when it came to the funeral I remember mum I was allowed to go to the funeral and um, the the unit let me out and but it was on the provision that mum came with me which I wouldn't have any other way because she's my rock and I remember being sat next to her at the funeral and um, watching all the lads that I'd grown up with my best mates sat next to each other sobbing like 20 year old lads sobbing but then when I looked to my right there was Lee's mum and his stepdad and his sister and his new baby sister broken mm. and I just remember thinking I'm doing this to my parents and my family but I'm doing it much slower and in front of everyone and that was the turning point for me you know um we'd sort of touched on this then when we were we were messaging, but, um, you know, like sometimes like awful things happen in this world, but you can try and find the good in it. And I'm not saying that Lee's death was, was good, but it, but it was a, a legacy in terms of him for me. And the last words that he said to me was stop wasting your life, Gem. And he knew what he was going to do. You know, it all makes sense now because mm. I'd seen him the weekend before, but, it was at that point that I started to think, right, an eating disorder is not about me having any form of control over my life. You know, I used to liken it to, well, if I can't control or deal with what people are saying or doing to me, I can control what goes inside me. Mm. The less of me there is, the less of me there is for people to hurt and, and to upset and I can just disappear. Um, and there's a there's a mentality in somebody who's got an eating disorder and, and a lot of people with mental health is that what they're doing is they're thinking that this activity this self-destruction is a way of controlling it but it's not it's got control of you and i finally started to be able to take control and um started having intense therapy and actually talking actually you know expressing what I was feeling and one of the things that mum and dad helped me with as well through seed was that our ethos is that we treat the person not the eating disorder and they reminded me that I was Gemma you know and, and they reminded me that I was I was a 21 year old with my life ahead of me they reminded me that I had all those things still in me they hadn't gone just needed to find them again and the rest, you know, is history. They, they helped me fight my way to get into drama school. Mm -hmm. um, I never dreamed I'd leave Hull. You know, I'd spent 13 years of my life not knowing what it was to be an adult. You know, and I think people forget this. Like, it, it's, it's all too readily said, oh, you know, that they've gone into a unit or, you know, they've gone into certain, so even that, even going into treatment at that point, is still something that they'll have to recover from yeah. afterwards. Do you know what I mean? So it's like, it's, you know, I still didn't really know how to live. Like, how do you do your washing? And like, how do you pay a council tax bill? Like yeah. at 23, I had no clue. By the time I got into drama school, I had no clue. I remember mum writing me a pack. <laughs> you know as northern mums do writing me a pack you know <laughs> but anyway I, I got into drama school and I guess that 
fight in me spared me on and I got the role of Rachel Breckley in Emmerdale a, a year after graduating which was a program that as a northerner you know I'd watch religiously um <laughs> yeah, we in all hospital, you know like yep. it was the dream and I decided at that point you know the press was sort of sniffing around and saying you know who's the new gal on the block and why has it got an MBE and oh it's because of the eating disorder charity and that's because Gemma had an eating disorder and started asking questions and I and I just I sought out some advice and help and one thing another fellow northerner said to me um Patrick Stewart had become a friend and a mentor and he said if we can't use our platform for good then what's the point in our industry you know and what's the point in in any of what we're doing acting's amazing and wonderful but like you've got a privilege now and you've got a duty of care to share your lived experience. And so that's what I started doing and went from patron to the last five months being manager of seat. <laughs> um, Taking on a big job, which is, is amazing. And obviously that's where we connected. And I was so fascinated listening to it and hearing your story. And I watched your TEDx talk the other day and powerful i mean even when you speak about your story there's so much passion in your voice and i resonated with so much of that because i didn't have anorexia but as a male i went through body dysmorphia and yeah. the thing you talk about control i thought i had it under control until i realized it had me under control yeah. and i could be going out that i'd tell me no you need to go and check the mirror you need to and it wasn't until the last bit, it nearly broke my marriage up and I broke down in front of my wife and I was like, I just, I, I can't do this. I'm spending four to five hours in front of a mirror. Like, and the thing with me, and I often say it, is I used to look on YouTube, but like people who were actually obese just to make myself feel better. And mm. it wasn't a way of judging them, but it was going, Glenn, there's actually nothing wrong with you. But two seconds later, I'd be pulling myself down and that's the mind. That's going, so I was in that, that climb, but to go through it that long, I was going to ask you, because you went, you, you've got such tenacity and strength to go through, and then you went through drama school, and you got this role in, that all the people in Australia and everyone that doesn't know Emmerdale, like, <gasps> huge, it, it's like home and away neighbours over here in Australia, and in the US, it's like your daytime show, like, you guys, everyone loves Emmerdale, um, but to be should I say thrown into the limelight of such a prolific show how was that and how did you navigate when the journalists and the paps started asking questions and because that in itself that industry like I've told you when we've been speaking yeah. <laughs> it's it's cutthroat it really is I think it, it's, a, it's a very good question because it's it, to the outside looking in it, it does not make sense like why would i choose to go in an industry that is based around like you know body image and you know who you know and and, and schmoozing and all, all of that stuff I, I guess the simple <laughs> schmooze i guess the simple um answer for is in my head acting had always been something that i'd, I'd done like a lot, of, a lot of actors say this, but this is true. It didn't choose me, I chose acting. I just knew from a very young age. And even during those, that 13 years, I still, when I had my well periods, which weren't well, it was just that physically I looked well. Um, I was still going to the Amateur Dramatic Society groups um, in Hall and Beverly and Hesel. I was competing in all of the um, festivals. Um, you know, I got, I got best in class in Shakespeare when I was 15 during a well period like in the Yorkshire region. And, oh, I just, I, I loved it. So I kept, I kept doing it. And it was a sense of release for me. It was, it was to be somebody else while I couldn't face what was going on inside me. So that's why I kept going with the acting. When I got to drama school, I, I was definitely bullied at drama school again, no doubt. Like I, I was with the Oxbridge Brigade. So like that's the, it was an, a course for older people, so over 21. 
little Jemmy from Hull had only been to high school and scraped her way through doing a national diploma in performing arts, but God knows how I passed it. I think they were just felt sorry for me because I didn't do half and a quarter of the coursework. <laughs> um, but, you know, because I was still ill. Like, and that was around the time that the, the heart attack happened. But I got through it. But there was all of these people who were, you know, they'd come from, you know, Oxford, Cambridge University. They knew who um, Ibsen was. I didn't have a chuffing clue. Um, they knew, like, do you know what I mean? Like, and, but I was the one, because of everything that I'd fought for, I was the one in class who went, can you explain that, please? I don't understand it. Mm. So let me just get this right. The homework is we do this, we do that, and we do that. What does a mid lens mean? What what's that? What's a mid shot? Like I don't, and and they used to get so annoyed with me, but I didn't care because I just I had this I had this fire in me. It, it was what was driving me, and it was what was keeping me going. So actually, even though I did get bullied through that period, and I got a lot of a lot of upset, my you've seen my TEDx talk. Sonia Fraser who was one of my drama teachers, but also. <laughs> She was the drama school therapist, and it is of no word of a lie that after we graduated, <laughs> sorry, my um, camera's going. Out. After we graduated, we about there was at least twenty of us out of the forty on the course that was going to see Sonia for therapy. <laughs> wow. um, but she taught me to use the debt, use all the crap that had ever been thrown at me in my life, use all the debt that I got yesterday from X, Y, and Z, and use it in this monologue now. Use the debt and use it to connect. And, and not just with the acting, but with your life. Use it to connect to every single part of what you believe in. Because acting is about getting somebody to believe what mm. you're feeling. And the only way you can do that is being authentic. You've got to sort of, you've got to resonate in some way and find the truth and that's the same with how I live my life yeah. and when I got Emmerdale I mean I was just so grateful like I was just like I was that annoying kid at school going oh my god oh my god, oh my god. <laughs> um, and again that was kind of frowned upon in the industry that I was going in I had to learn pretty quick that people people in my industry could be quite cynical you know, and especially the ones who have done it for a long time, they can be quite like, babe, it's just a job. And I'm like, babe, <laughs> um, no. <laughs> <laughs> um, but the joy of the first job that I got before Rachel, I had uh, two episodes on Doctors, um, and I played somebody who was an out-and-out right skywag. Um, and she was actually burnt down a pub and oh she was awful i'm just going to shut these blinds because they look like i've been on some sort of sunbed and i'm getting like <laughs> <laughs> it's morning here in the uk um but then when i got rachel i was still going in it oh sorry it doesn't matter when i got rachel um i don't know if you've seen the character that i played mm. i mean i'm yeah. hoping you don't think i look like her right now in in emmerdale you're talking about here yeah. When when we first connected again, and then I was looking at the years, and then I was like, "Yeah, I remember Rachel with Sam Dingle." <laughs> but look how different they made me look. Yeah. No, you look nothing. You know, and yeah. that but that was the joy. That was the joy of that first role. I didn't have to sort of worry about um, how I looked. I didn't have to worry about you know being the pretty girl in the. Because I wasn't, I'd go into makeup, I'd be done in two minutes, the rest of them would be sat there for an hour. It was great, I had so many lions, I can't tell you. Yeah. On set at seven o'clock, brilliant, I'm set for 6.45. Um, but I didn't have that, that pressure or that scrutiny. And it was amazing because I learned that the industry I was going into was because of my craft and not because of the way I looked. Mm. Um, it was only when I first started to go on the red carpet and my profile started to rise that again I started to get the the backlash the nasty comments the trolls you know and um, that was that was a hard period 
but then I had to remember what had got me to this point and that if words were hurting me like digital spy oh my god the forums on digital spy Gemma and Kat act what's that stupid accent look at there was a thread that said Rachel's skin color because I'm quite dark naturally and it was just a whole thread about how I wore too much fake tan or I've been dipped in Ron Seal, which I actually found quite funny, but still. Um, I, I make jokes of it now. I'm like, I go on holiday. I'm like, I'm going to go dark mahogany today. You wait. <laughs> um, and tomorrow I'll be rich mahogany. Um, <clears throat> but I've learned, you know, to... I've dealt with that. And the comments can be so cruel. But again, I haven't been through what I've been through in my life to not be able to go, right, stop reading. Mm-hmm stop reading the comments and I just do it anymore and even now when I do get you know I'm touch wood quite fortunate that I don't get abuse online you, you do when you get like I think like whenever you're on daily mail online like there's always like the comments underneath um you know oh, Chav Central and uh, she's been dragged up and uh, look at her chin and I'm like yeah but Michael Douglas got a lot of money for his chin so there you go um but then I decided with my public speaking I started going into schools and talking to young kids and I decided to take all of those comments and use it in one of my talks and and the kids love it and it, and it helps them because one of the comments was she's such a disgrace um, she's a, a really bad role model to young people. And I think it was because, uh, what had I done? <laughs> what had I done? <laughs> um, oh, I'd been packed in my pyjama bottoms. I'd popped the shop in my pyjama bottoms. It went in the paper, fine, whatever. And then somebody said I was a disgrace and a bad role model to young people. But that's like what I say in front of the kids at school. And I'm like, and this person, um, JoeBlog22355, says that, I'm a bad role model to young people. Well, that's awkward because I'm in your school talking to you now. So I've like tried to sort of get the kids to understand that, you know, no area of your life can you control, but what you can control is how you deal with it. And if you keep talking, which I'm doing a lot of, sorry. um, (laughs) It's good. and and expressing then then you're halfway there but I think the thing that that you know we I remember when you sent me like the voice note um about um people seem to react rather than prevent and intervene and that's that's the thing that is at the heart of of seed you know and at the heart of everything I do I I I still can't quite get my head around Glenn. How do I say this without causing a a storm? There's so much conversation, right, about mental health, isn't there? And it's amazing. Like we're at a time where it is it is high on the agenda and and you know all of these big, you know, big wigs and 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 the you know the government are saying about how on the verge of a mental health crisis. And people are talking and there's so many campaigns and like, God, like World Mental Health Day. I mean, who would have thought it 10 years, 20 years ago? But no one's doing still. That's what I'm struggling with. Mm. And, and again, I know the world's not perfect, imperfectly perfect. None of us are. I'm not. God, I get it wrong every single day. Yeah. But what I and, and I have and what you have and... It is, we care, it's from lived experience, we get it, but we don't have the power or resource to be able to help those people. Like, three three calls last week to us at Seed, and by the way, those calls, we've only got one person on the advice line, and that's my mum, who's not very well at the moment. This is how small a grassroots charity we are. Mm-hmm. And then I think there was two calls and, and one email direct to me. Three separate families whose kids were on the verge of death because CAMS and their GP, they haven't been able to see the GP. CAMS hadn't, hadn't picked up the phone to support them. And don't get me wrong, I know CAMS are severely 
underfunded right now. I know they're struggling and I know that's the government who needs to trickle that money down faster. But newsflash, there are organisations and small companies out there and people like yourself that were trying to make a difference, but no one's supporting us. And yet we're the ones taking on the role of early intervention and prevention, which would in turn stop these people going into hospital and, and losing you know, years, years of their life, stop their parents, stop their families going through hell. And in turn, the ramifications on that being them having a mental health issue. No wonder, you know, there's a bloody mental health crisis going on. It is. It's one I of those things so, so passionate about. And I thought we'd go into this being too, too northerners. And when you get passionate about something, and it, I'm with you because... I often say, I'm like, when you see huge amounts of addition <laughs> going into things, but you see suicide rates still increasing, that was one of the reasons I started this campaign. I sadly lost a friend. And sadly, we're seeing people falling through the cracks. Even in uh, the US the other day, a good friend of mine said that her family member, somebody they knew, had literally was told by either the GP or whoever they'd gone to that they didn't meet the criteria to actually get help, but yet they was on the verge of taking their life possibly. And it was like, so it's up to the family. And then you've got, you see all these huge amounts of millions of dollars, additional funds going into the huge organizations. And you kind of like, if that somehow trickled down to the ones that are at community-based level. And yeah. one, one of my big things was like, I'm very fortunate and grateful this is now this campaign has gone on to be one of the biggest publicized campaigns out there yet i've not had one call from anybody in power to say and i've created and not just me people like yourself coming on we've come together it's not been led by money it's not been but it's kept on growing and we put on virtual hangs which is basically where you can all come on and just share it and then we've got international workshops whereby we put a psychologist that we've gone out and we make sure everything's safe and share stories, the oldest form of communication and the amount of people that have turned around and goes, I found my tribe. I've just found that commonality. And, and yet it can be on a network. It can be in a paper every other day. And we had some more publicity and not heard from any single person. And there's me like working 24 hours behind the scenes with a small team and everyone's going, Oh, I get you. Wow, you're a huge organization. I'm like, this is part of my campaign. You mm. don't see behind the scenes. I show the behind the scenes. So, so it's like I can run nine social media accounts when I started this. I can work on a construction site because I jumped on there for 12 hours a day so I could fund it all. I can run a family. I can network. I can contact and network with people in the entertainment industry, corporate. I can, I can do all that. So then... If one person can do that, why are we spending salaries on maybe a team of 10 to 20 social media people when one person's managed to take a campaign internationally with the help of people wanting to save lives? <laughs> so I get passionate about it as well. And I think there's so many great advocates and all the grassroots levels. And yes, the big organizations with the funding do amazing jobs and programs. We're not we're not taking away from that, but sometimes it's yeah. when you get passionate about the government and you go, look at the smaller community-based ones who are actually on the foot running with the caseworkers and the community workers. Cause I've gone out and spoke to some of these and the caseworkers are like, yeah, we, we honestly don't see much resources. So again, not getting into politics or anything because we don't know the behind the scenes, but it, it's one of those when you are talking to the people who clearly need the money and the help. So yes. with that being said, over in the UK or whoever's listening on here, this podcast, we've got a big base of listeners. What can people do at the moment? Because I know you put out for some help for Seek at the moment. So what can we do? Guys, first of all, go and check out Seek. So where can we find Seek? Um, www.seedeatingdisorders.org.uk I put on a nice accent because obviously like some people can't understand me Yorkshire one um, or go on my Twitter or Instagram or LinkedIn um, Gemma 
as my name is Gemma Oten, um, oh, that bloody blind, um, and all the information's on there. And basically, at the moment, um, we are really, really struggling, like to the point where, you know, we don't know how we're going to keep helping the people that, that need us, ultimately. Um, I feel like I'm at a disco with the, with the stripes. It's where I am, isn't it? It's not working at all. Um, I feel like, sorry, imperfectly perfect. How are you doing? <laughs> See if I can do it that way. But this is it. This, this proves the point, doesn't it? This, this, is, this, is, my, this is my office. You know, like, and even before lockdown, there was no real, like, office. You know, it's me, mum, dad, and a group of volunteers. That's it. You know, like, but we help hundreds and thousands of people. We've never really had a big income stream, stream um, because, you know, we, we've just been northern. My mum and dad have always been like, oh, you know, we just, we just do what we do and we don't, need, we don't need anything. They've not paid themselves a penny in 20 years, which blows my mind. Mm. Like, they are so salt of the earth, amazing. Since I've taken over, the reason I have is because my parents are not well. Um, on top of that, they've just got COVID. Um, and that's not a sob story, just it is what it is. Um, but I want my parents to be around longer, but I also want Seed to be around. And I'm trying to take Seed to the next level because I know we're on a really exciting phase. But when COVID happened, because I'd been working on, on taking over before COVID and before lockdown. You know, we had so many things coming up where we were going to fundraise and do this and do that, and it's all gone. And yet what hasn't gone and what's increased is the amount of people who need us. But we've, we've got no resource. Mm. And, and, like, and, and we're getting, with the second most visited website in the UK, for eating disorders and our website is visited from people as far as America, Australia, you know, we've had, we've had people contact us from Italy, like, but yet it, we, we, we ha have nothing, <laughs> but what we do have is empathy and lived experience and true knowledge of, of what it is like for those people out there who are affected by an eating disorder and at the moment then the the rise in in calls and emails from this time last year 27 percent increase in our support group even though it's via zoom um there's been a 28 percent increase in calls and there's been a 27 percent increase in people coming to us through the contact form like, and then just yesterday I read that there's, you know, a mental health crisis in the UK. Well, no shit, Sherlock, sorry to swear. Um, <laughs> you haven't heard that for years. <laughs> great term. Um, but yeah, so Seed basically need money. Um, God, I, I'm sorry, Glenn, I just, I'm tired, I'm right? I'm tired um, and I keep like doing these videos and, and you know I'm trying to be like upbeat and positive because I am because I care but then I keep you know doing videos to try and get people to understand why and then I start getting emotional and then I think oh for god's sake people are just going to think that I'm an absolute screw loose but it, I, I, it's not I've never been that person to put on a show yes as an actress but in my heart and who I am. I am who I am and I is who I is. You know, like I, I can't I can't change who I am and this matters. Like it it really, really matters. Yeah. You know, and um if seeds disappear it's not for my livelihood. It's, it's the lives of others because one thing that we at sea believe in like you, Glenn, is that if we grew to a point where we were sustainable, I didn't have to worry about bringing in, you know, this scraping. I could actually focus on 
what it is we need to do to help other charities out there. Mm. You know what I mean? Like, I, I just, I know there's B and they're amazing, but they, like, and it's the same with a lot of um, organisations. There's one pin, like pivotal one, and then there's no middle ground. So there's B, who are fantastic, don't get me wrong, but we get a lot of referrals as well from B because they, like, they can't cope with everything. But then there's us. And then there's all of these other wonderful charities around the country, especially with eating disorders, who are there because there's no bloody eating disorder help. There's no unit. And even if there was a unit, people now definitely can't drive to it because of lockdown. So, like, God forbid, if I was in Sheffield still at the moment and my mum and dad were in Hull, Sheffield's tier three, Hull's not even on tier two. Yeah. You know, and, and I know there's this whole thing like where, you know, in emergency, but then you've got people giving, like, paid 20 quid to go and grasp people up. Like, it just, right. you know, that's what's going on at the moment. Like, you know, people have been paid to keep an eye on you know, everyone following and abiding by the rules. Like, the whole system's gone mad. And Boris, don't even get me started on his bloody obesity strategy. <laughs> you know, I'm quite uh, brilliant. I'm really glad you've given money to prescribe bicycles. I mean, that's going to cause the obesity crisis, or whatever he wants to call it. Uh, newsflash, an eating disorder can be somebody who is obese because there's something called overeating because bulimia is not determined by somebody's weight, because body dysmorphia is not determined by somebody's weight. There's a reason behind that person being obese, and it's not to get on a bloody bicycle. Mm. Like, don't pound money into the physical and not pound money into the mental side. Yeah. Sorry, I said I won't get political. Boris, I'm sorry, I know it's really hard at the moment. I wouldn't want to be in his shoes. I don't think any prime minister would. But there are fundamental things like this that are being spoken about and are just being ignored. Mm. And I don't, for the love of God, get it. Well, this is what we are coming together to, to be the voice and try and make some oh, change. I'm sorry, I went off on no. one there. <laughs> I went off on one. See, I'm laughing because I've missed this banter with Northerners. Um, but yeah, everything that you were saying there, look, to be honest with you, anyone that's listening, when you know a Northerner, there is intense. It's a salt of the earth. It really is. It's you will go to your last what's the word? Last legs. I haven't been there in that long, but your last legs for your neighbours, your next door neighbours. And people often say to me here, they're like, how do you manage to connect to everybody? And I'm just like, because I don't see anybody as different. I don't look at a profession like I was saying to you. It, it's just yeah. a northerner is like, if you are nice, if you are, you just take people for what they are. And sometimes that's to our detriment, I believe, <laughs> because sometimes we can be like, oh, that person's lovely. And then you get walked all over and you're like, oh, well, I didn't see that one coming, but there you go. Um, <laughs> at the same time. But I know you're on a mission at the moment to obviously raise some capital for, for it. So you have started a GoFundMe. Where can they find that GoFundMe? I'll put the links up for it as well. Yeah, thank you. Um, the GoFundMe, again, is all over my, my, my social media. Uh, it's on the website. Um, every single platform that I'm on, it's on. And every single platform, Seed, which is at Seed Hull on Instagram, Twitter and Facebook. Um, it's, it's all on there as well. Um, yeah, it's, it, and, and the, the, the response and support has been amazing. But like you say, there's still been nobody who can. You know, it's it's been it's been the graft of of myself and you know the team, oh, no myself <laughs> myself, <laughs> um, and 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 like the community around us. You know, like who have who have got us to this point. I mean, we're up to the target is ten thousand pound, and that is the minimum we need to to survive in terms of bills and adapting to like the online world that we're in as well yeah. you know like every, every people don't realize like the website don't come for free you know the helpline don't come for free you know the support groups if we need to bring in we've just lost 
this is what breaks my heart. We've just lost our last therapist because we can't afford to pay her to deliver a free, a free service one-to-one to some of our users. I mean, how, how, how upsetting is that? You know, so it's it's ten thousand pound minimum to get to be able to just breathe and go right. Okay, more than that would actually help us to carry on to do and also grow and help others um, in terms of other people in the sector, which would just be my dream because then we could spread the word, spread the love, and 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 spread the help that's needed. Well, now you've got the Imperfectly Perfect campaign without you on well spread the word as well. So guys, dig deep, like, come on, 10,000, a lot of places, a lot of people have a lot of input that they can get this word out and really help these guys because these guys are making a huge difference. So I, I just want to say, Gemma, on behalf of the campaign, on behalf of me. Oh, I did want to ask you one last question, though. I ask everybody it, but it might be a funny one because you I'll ask it you anyway. What does being imperfectly perfect mean to you? Um, it means that... Oh, gosh. Being perfectly perfect means that... What I've lived my life by, really, actually, there is no perfect. There is no normal. But if you live by Dr. Zeus, you can't go wrong. And that is, today you are you. That is true within true. There is no one alive that is you within you. Oh, never had that answer. That's that's amazing answer. Well, as I said, like I just want to say thank you well, for the campaign. Me, say a big thank you to your parents for what they've created oh. over the last twenty years. Because I think, like I said the other day, I take my heart to anybody just going out on a limb and just creating something that's so personal to them. So. Guys, I will put all the links up to this episode, this off the cuff episode. But off um, the cuff? yeah, off the cuff. Oh, yeah. you know what? I'm glad, though, Glenn. I'm, I'm really glad we did it because, again, sometimes you, you can't plan for everything, can you? And if you speak from the heart and you're true to yourself, then we can't go far wrong, can we? And equally, like honestly, keep up the amazing work. Like I know it's hard, and I know it's a slog, and I know we don't sleep much. Um, but you know you are to get to where you are and giving people like myself and, and other charities um, a sense of hope but also the people who need us a sense that they're not alone like right now that is so important so like hats off to you mate like you're doing a great great job thank you very much well guys i'm gonna put all the links up but remember just simply head to spotify or higher radio where you can subscribe to the imperfectly perfect podcast but until next time, guys, make sure you keep having those hard conversations because those truly are the things that we all need to know that we're not alone. To find out more about the Imperfectly Perfect campaign and how you can get involved, simply head to our official website at imperfectlyperfectcampaign.org or email us today at info at imperfectlyperfectcampaign.org to speak to one of the team. The Imperfectly Perfect campaign is creating awareness and is not a substitute for professional advice. Should you need help, please refer to your nearest crisis number.